Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait, you look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money? A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV, starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start, Start saving, saving today. today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. I believe the children are our future. Mm, you treat them well? <laughs> no! We'll let them lead the way. I never knew that that was Eddie Murphy growing up. <laughs> you guys, welcome to coming to America's conversation today. Uh, I don't know about y'all, but it is definitely one of my family's favorite movies of all time. Welcome to Pop History. My name is Jackie Zabrowski. My name is Holden McNeely, a absolute classic. That was that film, too, growing up that it was just like it was a little forbidden. It was a little before you're, you know, since you're a little kid when that movie's popular. Uh, and and so it was always kind of like, what are the dirty parts? And then seeing the uncensored version, and then l- later getting to see the or seeing the censored version, later getting to see the uncensored version, and and how fun that is with the whole. Because I, I remember it being like, the royal penis is clean. I, and I, I it's great. Which I also was scandalous, and yet growing up, you realize how scandalous. It actually is. Yeah, a lot of jokes I actually got watching it again recently. Natalie, you've watched the shit out of this movie. Uh, yeah, hey, I'm Natalie Jean, and uh, yes, in fact, I uh, have the very distinct memory as a little girl that it was the first time I'd ever seen a woman's nude breasts was that mm. movie. I was probably maybe five at the time. But How I did have, you feel about the breast? I went, hmm, quality. <laughs> um, like any five-year-old mm-hmm. would. They are beautiful women. Yes. Uh, yes. This yeah. movie is chock full of beautiful people. And I have since loved that movie, but maybe not just because of the breasts. But it doesn't, it doesn't hurt. hurt. It certainly doesn't hurt. And the outfits definitely don't hurt. Mm-hmm. And and I, I also, how many times I had to see it before I realized not only that... Eddie Murphy was the head of sexual chocolate, but the, the fact that he and Arsenio Hall did so many characters. I even remember the first time when I realized that Arsenio Hall was the one, was, quote, what her name is, is ugly girl. And actually, I think Arsenio Hall is beautiful woman. Oh, yeah. And I thought there was like, a, how did they find someone that looks just like <laughs> Semi to be in it? That's crazy. But you're right. The dude that sings at the uh, rally... I, I, we had to take a second to be like, wait, is that Eddie Murphy? That is, 
He's the most disguised in that one, I think. Yeah. Yes. You can only tell by the sound of his voice, I feel like, that yes. that is Eddie Murphy. Like, and it actually, is so that, crazy. And in the barbershop. Yeah. I really, I had no idea. Really? That the old white Jewish guy. I mean, growing up, I did it. Now, I definitely right. have in the past, like, you know, 10, 15 years. But it, as a kid, I had no idea. And it blew my mind, which is why later on we'll get into a little bit about the fact that I can't believe Rick Baker worked on this movie. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> I had no idea that Rick Baker, Rick Baker, who was huge in the horror community, I had yeah, no yeah. idea that he did the prosthetics and the makeup for this movie, which makes so much mm-hmm. fucking sense. Because they're unbelievable. Also, I-, I had seen Coming to America like so long ago, and then way later in time saw Trading Places and had no, I did, never caught the reference until last night of the home Trading oh, yeah, Places. Yeah. Homeless yeah. guys. Yeah. I couldn't believe, I was like, is this real? Because John Landis first worked with Eddie Murphy on Trading Places. And right. even as I was watching Coming to America before that happened, I was like, oh, this is like opposite Trading Places for Eddie Murphy's character. Right, yeah, right. This guy going from rich to acting poor instead of going from poor to rich. And then and then the, the two guys came out I wonder what I must have thought back in the day. Like, why is this happening? Like, if you don't know that reference, then that you would, makes, it makes so no much sense. less sense. Yes. <laughs> it makes absolutely no sense. And this movie is just, it, it is so embedded in my brain. And, I, and most of the, the people I was around growing up, because we grew up in Queens. So it is, I mean, it is the forever joke that you go to Queens to find someone fit for a king and um that is i mean here i am kings come get me <laughs> you are a queen jackie <laughs> i will say i'm sure there, there are still definitely bad parts of queens but it's just so funny being living in astoria like how unlike you know my neighborhood the film setting is yeah but you, you go out I mean? to woodhaven it's still a little you know yeah where for because that is actually my parents so i told my mom that we were doing coming to america this week because there is a shot in the movie on of the outside of a movie theater and my parents were actually in that movie theater watching coming to america when it came out and it blew my mom's mind because also (laughs) they didn't show uh the parts of queens where we came from very often in movies if you could imagine so this was actually a huge thing yeah were were they filming around your like actual neighborhood yes you, oh okay cool yeah, yeah so that's why and, my and parents you, because so usually that would it. make some sort of a happy um nuclear family from somewhere else like throw their guts up in horror yes to see where jackie grew up you i know, know I mean? everyone would be so upset about it but you know what there were no secret kings coming to um want to be in a relationship with me surprisingly well you know what uh it's better that you have this experience because when I was a kid, the thing they shot around my house was Silence of the Lambs. <laughs> Although beautiful so, background for such a horrifying <laughs> well, story. We lived near the um, scary house where she's in the in the uh, with the black. It puts the lotion on its skin. Not that one, but the one where she has like she's in the dark and then he puts on the. Uh, What's it the called? Night, night cam? Oh, yeah, yeah. yes, 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 yes. I love that bathtub all full of goo. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think she that's did. That's my representation of my neighborhood. I have to say, last night watching the neighborhood that Jackie grew up in, I literally, at one point, I put my hand into my pants, I pulled out a poo, 
and I threw it at the screen like a wild no, animal. I was so disgusted by screen. the neighborhood that Jackie. Uh, for, and, but it, I was also like, this makes so much sense. She's such she's a, garbage a trash person, person <laughs> and she loves being in the trash. <laughs> and I just love. But I do think that that's why it is so fun when they show up middle of winter. Yeah, and, and it's just Terrible. what a nightmare of a place. And oh my god, when they go inside of the house, and then immediately everyone comes and steals all of. <laughs> yeah. That like stressed me out. I was like, ugh, ugh, I hate this. But they have so much money, and that's really what it is in your brain. And also, I got to throw this out there, how much... So I am still a huge fan of ER. And so Dr. Ah. Benton... When I saw Dr. Benton was in ER from, because I just loved him so much, we only referred to him, obviously, as Soul Glow. But I'm talking about <laughs> Daryl in Coming to America. And he's such the opposite as Dr. Benton. But then in my head, I was like, but what if this is the origin story of Dr. Benton? And this is, um, that's sad that no one cares about this. That's great because he was not, he was down and out at the end of this movie. Maybe that was the catalyst he needed to become a doctor. Oh my God, he's such a good doctor. But we're not talking about ER right now. And hopefully we will at some point in the future. Because today we're talking about coming to America. And how is it that even... James Earl Jones is just the most regal person mm. of all time. Mm-hmm. And he and his wife in this, it, everything, I mean, it really does make you want to be royalty. This is the movie that Makes really Makes me want to go to Zamunda, but I can't because it's not real. No, it's not real. And I do love how they're like, oh, no, no, they're in Africa. Mm, put another elephant in it. Uh, <laughs> yet, uh, get a little zebra. Make that run through. <laughs> As if that is what just happens in a palace yeah, yeah, yeah. in Africa. <laughs> For sure. Uh, but you know what? They really catered towards how dumb Americans were. Absolutely. And I do love, and I will forever love, because I remember my dad would always be like, I would never let anyone talk to my daughter like that. Where when <laughs> her father finally stands up for her in the end, and it really is the only semi-pro-America thing that happens in this movie. (laughs) It's the only time. The rest of it, it really does show how dumb and shitty America and Americans (laughs) can be at times. For For sure. sure. Especially in the late 80s, because of course this is a movie from 1988. Uh, and, and, And again, I'm just in love with these. I think it's because of the current situation we're all in right now. If you're listening this way in the future, God, I hope I hope it's super fun then and we're all hanging out and going to concerts and stuff like we used to. But at the time we're in right now, it's quarantine. I've been drawn to these like uh, uh, period pieces from the 80s. I've been drawn to these like, Definitely. just transport me to another time. Yes. Because I guess maybe, maybe seeing representations of normal life in modern day just is upsetting. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because I'm like, then I'm looking at what I'm missing. But in the 80s, if they're all at the club having fun, it's like, oh, well, it's the 80s. I'm like, just, I'm, you know, transported somewhere else completely. And so how cute are they? So, oh so my God. adorable. I, my bro- See, I was always completely in love with Arsenio Hall in this movie. I he's thought so he's, good he's so good and he's just so hot in it. I mean, but, I mean, Eddie Murphy is He's so very charming. Charming. He's very charming. Oh, so charming. And I just love him in this movie. Well, and this has him at an interesting point in time, and we're about to back up and tell the tale of Eddie Murphy. But I will say, Lannis does not have a lot of nice things to say about working with him on this picture. He is top shit at this no, point. No, there's a lot of upset. And in fact, as someone that really loves this movie so much, 
I had no idea there was this much fucking drama around yeah. this movie. I never but, thought about know, it. It makes sense. It makes sense. And also, John Landis is a huge personality. Eddie Murphy's a, a big person. It's going to happen. I always feel right. weird about John Landis, but... You know, for other reasons. And we will also get into why Eddie Murphy didn't go to the Twilight Zone trial to defend him. And so, like, there's um. There's a lot yeah, going that up Twilight to the Zen set. Thing is it's, uh, we'll, we'll briefly talk about the Twilight Zone. I want to do a whole. Though. I mean, it is. That's a. That's hard. not it's as not rough. fun times. Episode. No, yeah. <laughs> it's not a smile episode. This, this is a fun is a time smile episode. episode. You promised yeah. me a fun time episode. Yes. So that's what we're gonna have. All Tell the us about tension, Eddie Murphy holding all the tension and awful stuff aside for sure. And uh, by the way, really quick too, before we get into Eddie Murphy, there would be no Hercules, Hercules without coming to America. I didn't even think about it like that. Nutty Professor, all him being like a bunch of parts in a movie. This is the first like time he that, ever does that. That all starts in coming to America. So Hercules, 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 <laughs> Hercules, Hercules, Hercules. You're talking about the Nutty Professor. Yes, <laughs> is that the movie? I feel like, I I feel like it's always not the clumps. Oh, the, but yeah, the, yeah. The clumps uh, came later. The clumps are in Nutty Professor. Yeah, yeah they start in I, Nutty I, Professor. I, I'm all. Well, I don't it looks understand like we're about to have to do an episode on something you like wait, that. Because I'm going to force you guys to get into Norbit at some point. Norbit. <laughs> I can't wait for a Norbit episode. We and will then our flubber episode right after that. We'll do Norbit. Uh, then we'll do flubber. Then we'll sure. cover all the shitastic films of the mid-2000s. <laughs> Either way, uh, Eddie Murphy, uh, unbelievable story, born in Brooklyn, raised in Bush in, a, in its Bushwick neighborhood in Brooklyn, which is not, especially back then, not a great... Now it's fine. Now, now it's, it's just as expensive, expensive as ever live there. <laughs> yeah, now it's actually pretty bumping. Uh, his mother was a telephone operator and his father was a transit police officer, an amateur actor and comedian who died when Murphy was just eight years old. After that, when his mother became ill, he and his older brother, Charlie, lived in foster care where he said he developed his sense of humor. And that makes a lot of sense. There's a whole other. Please look up also Charlie Murphy. This is a whole Mm -hmm. other very upsetting story of how funny his older brother was, but really did give his younger brother the pedestal to shine and just kind of was behind him and supported him and uh he passed away uh, a little bit ago but it is a very uh but please look up charlie murphy as well who's a um, very funny writer mm-hmm. charlie murphy fantastic you might know him from the Chappelle show mm-hmm. either way at the age of 15 he heard a richard pryor comedy album and decided he wanted to be a comedian while also heavily inspired by peter sellers and developing a multitude of characters peter sellers of course Best known in maybe Doctor Strangelove mm-hmm. or Pink Panther, but known for his ability to transform into these characters, which obviously Eddie Murphy adopted in a, a fantastic way. Yes. He started skipping school to perform in clubs underage and put out his first stand-up album at just 21 years old. So he's like going to clubs and he's like 16, 17 doing stand-up. And uh, yeah, his first album, self-titled, um, this was followed by Delirious and Raw uh, which got a wide theatrical release. And it, huge I mean, for the stand-up community. Huge. I mean, it is just, if you have never watched them, you gotta. It's you gotta. Just, I'm gonna give you a warning, though, especially Delirious. I, I forget about Raw, but it gets, it gets it's rough from the beginning. Oh, yes. Yes. Is it a little bit of a naughty? It, yeah, it was, a, you know, you definitely realize it was 30 it. years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep. definitely, definitely doesn't hold up some of it. Uh, no, no. But either way. I'm sorry, 35 years ago? Oh my God, we're getting old, y'all. That's <laughs> insane. 
In the early 80s, he was cast on Saturday Night Live, and if you don't know, he's largely credited with keeping with revitalizing that show. Uh, he he, especially with his well-known, well-remembered characters, uh, his parody of Fred Rogers with Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood, the grown-up Buckwheat character he did, Buckwheat from Once, Little Rascals. Twice, three times, I made it. Because this was also around the time when Lorne Michaels left the show. Yes. And so it was this weird in-between point, and he stayed on and really uh, and kept it going and was the only member, I believe, that had ever hosted while being uh, like cast in the show at the same time because Nick Nolte couldn't show up. And also he hated doing Buckwheat so much, which I didn't realize this. <laughs> That he, on May 12th, he asked the SNL writers to kill Buckwheat off. He said that on May 12th, 1983, viewers watched the sketch Buckwheat Dead, America Mourns, in which Buckwheat is assassinated in front of 30 Rock. He still couldn't get rid of it after that, but I still think it's funny that he tried. I wonder why he hated it so much. Probably it's just fun. annoying. It's, it's a pretty flat character. It's like, funny, it's, though. It's, it's not a lot of I variety. Mean, it's no Mr. Robinson. And but. it's just making fun of ju- like mostly his voice. So there's only yeah. so far you can go. And also, who could forget? I'm Gumby, damn it. Uh, <laughs> well, his first performance on the big screen, however, was starring alongside Nick Nolte, which was uh, in 48 Hours, right? 48 Hours, It is right? called, yes, it is 48 Hours. And he was Fantastic also, film. he was nominated for a Golden Globe that year for the movie he was beaten out by Ben Kingsley for Gandhi alright fine Ooh, I guess whatever that was the year I was born by the way this is also the beginning of what I do want to discuss a little bit about Eddie Murphy and the, I feel that he was wrongly ripped a bit after doing Coming to America because of how people thought that he was portraying Africans as well as um, black people that live in America. And he, this is really the beginning. 48 Hours is where Eddie Murphy didn't want to just be a black star. Eddie Murphy wanted to be a star. And we were talking about this a little bit earlier where I never look at Coming to America as, quote unquote, a black movie in the way that people refer to it online, I never thought of it as such. It's just an amazing fucking movie. And I do find it interesting where even Eddie Murphy comes out, it's like, he's like, name another movie in 1988 where there are four speaking white roles. And right. that's it. Right. And then everybody else in the movie is black. Name yeah. another movie. Like, what do you think that I was trying to do here? This is way bigger than just like the how you feel of how you believe it was written or how, how the character should have been portrayed. That this was huge. And he even also had said about the movie 48 Hours there was this there's the scene when he and Nick Nolte are in a bar it's it's like an icon the iconic bar scene from 48 hours and he says you know why it worked then and the reason why it wouldn't now my significance in film and again I'm not going to be delusional was that I'm the first black actor to take charge in a white world on screen Mm -hmm. black exploitation movies even if you dealt with the man it was in your neighborhood never in their world in 48 hours that's why it worked because I'm running it making the story go forward and it's the same where it's like I mean now with his comeback with Dolomite and how he is very open with how black exploitation movies helped him grow and made him realize what he wanted to be and not in the black world but in the world right yeah and I mean of course we can only speak to this from the perspective of white people but as a kid 
I, the same. Like I never, it never occurred to me that it would ever be something called a black movie because I just I loved it so much, and I was I probably watched this movie more times than any. Well, I'd say like. Three or four movies I've seen more than this movie. And also that has to do a lot, too, with our white privilege and how we are able to view movies that that I know that it is because of that privilege that we can say, like, I never saw this as a black movie. Right. But then there are so many that that so much of the community is so behind the movie as well as against it, because you're right. It's not the best painting of especially America. But but I think we deserve it a little bit. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The next film he ends up starring in is Trading Places, a comedy classic, of course, alongside Dan Aykroyd, Jamie Lee Curtis. It is his first collaboration with John Landis, who he's going to end up directing Coming to America. We're going to do a little background on John Landis in just a little bit, but that is their first Amitang. After that, he becomes one of the hottest stars of the 80s with the Beverly Hills Cop franchise. I mean, if you weren't around during this time, Eddie Murphy was fucking everywhere. Everywhere. Mm -hmm. He's a a star. I mean, he's just made to be a star. He was the dude. Like, the Well, and also because he works his ass off. And that's why in all the stories you hear about how he is not the easiest to work with on this set, it's just like, man, he had... His forward motion in mind, and sometimes you can't stop to be a very nice person, and not to defend him about that, but like, he's got one goal in mind, and that's to never go back to the life that he grew up in. Well, and also, I mean, in this particular instance, he's playing, how many characters? Like six, maybe? He's got a lot on his plate. He plays four roles in the film, Prince Akeem, Joffer, soul singer Randy Watson, Jewish barbershop shop customer Saul, and Clarence, the owner of the barbershop. So and and uh, it was um, it start as, as we said it started his playing several characters in every movie. Landis said what we discovered was that the makeup freed him. Once he was in the makeup, he was just as fresh as when he was nineteen. In fact, the people who made the Nutty Professor said they loved working with Sherman Clump, but they hated working with Eddie Murphy. <laughs> this makes it does make a lot of sense. <laughs> Landis also said Eddie's genius is mimicry. He can be anyone. If you say sing like Eddie Murphy. He's got no voice. But if you say sing like Jackie Wilson or Frank Sinatra, sing like Stevie Wonder or James Brown, I mean, he can do it. Well, like we were just mentioning, the the band leader of uh, Sexual Chocolate, it's yeah. hard to even tell that it's Eddie Murphy. Except yeah. for his voice, which is, yeah, and he even said, uh, this was in a recent interview, they were asked um, how he felt about playing different characters in, in a bunch of movies. He said, you know, every time I do a makeup movie, I always say, this is the last time I'm doing this shit. <laughs> And then I always wind up back in the makeup chair. He says he keeps finding more movies where it kind of makes sense to do it. But I think it also does give him a bit of a relief to not be himself for a oh, little yeah, bit. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. That, that completely take him out of his own um, depression issues and and the other things that he deals with in his life. Oh, absolutely. Especially in, like, when he blew up. He was, how old is he on uh, SNL? Like, 18? 19? He was 19, really 20, he was young. Yeah. Really young. And that's a lot. Even though he wanted to be a star, that you're not ever prepared for it mentally and emotionally, and especially not when you're that age. Right. Well, And we'll talk about it more when we get to the script, but I, this is a great time to note. I mean, that's what this movie's all about. This movie is about someone trying to be accepted for who they are, not for the status they've obtained. Which is why yeah. he came up with this idea yeah. in the first place. Because this is a part of this huge Paramount deal that he gets around this time that I believe it was a five-movie deal that, there, that they were in talks with him that he could just make whatever he 
he wanted, and this was one of his ideas. And this yeah. is they, there's a very fun interview with him and Arsenio when they're like behind the scenes on the movie. And I saw that interview, yeah. Natalie. Yeah, it's so <laughs> cute. They're you can just tell actually how young they actually are because they're just mm-hmm. being friends and kind of just like fucking with each other in the interview. But they yep. do actually bring that up in that interview that it is sort of based around the same idea of like how do you meet like a serious partner when they know who you are yeah right. and just yeah. Sur- surrounded by so many people i mean when you become famous as we all know as you're surrounded by all these people who are gonna say whatever they can say to make you feel good or whatever or like uh, you say as we all know as if that's us but really it's just because we've been um obsessed with britney spears for the past month <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> Release me, Britney. All right, let's talk about John Landis. Let's talk about not Britney Spears, John Landis. Uh, Born into a Jewish family in Chicago, Illinois, his parents would uh, would relocate to Los Angeles soon thereafter. When he was quite young, however, though, he always maintained this, like, deep love of Chicago, which I feel like that personality of Chicago breathes through like it's got like he's got like that john hughes energy in yes words, very mm-hmm. much so uh when he was quite young he saw the epic film the seventh voyage of sinbad which inspired him to become a director he said essentially it transported him i mean it's this big epic with giant monsters and things like that and he just super super fell in love with it he started out as a male boy at 20th century fox and then as a gopher and then as assistant director on various projects even doing some stunt double work natalie i didn't know that weird I wonder to think what he, about yeah wonder what he did. i guess he did some stunt double work i don't know uh, i'll have to look into that <laughs> yeah yeah he's a guy that gets kicked in the nuts and the i and would his. say I mean, that be. he's well cast <laughs> Yes, absolutely. It's too bad, too, because he is very good at making oh, yeah. movies. Yes. It just seems like he's um, very difficult to work with. That to he, the point where he's dangerous? Yeah. That he's very dangerous, <laughs> that he wants what he wants, and he's going to make that happen in any way possible, it, which all of these ways, all of these things could be said in a positive light. But unfortunately for John Landis, it's not always in a positive light. No. Uh, so, yeah, he and we're about to get into that. His directorial debut came with Schlock at just 21 years old. It was a tribute to monster movies. Very similar to, like, Peter Jackson with, um, oh, what's the Bad name? Taste. The, Bad Taste. Bad Taste. He made, like, a really schlocky horror B movie. Hell yeah. uh, Dead and, Alive uh, is also Dead one Alive. of the best horror Ooh, movies yeah. of all time. It, uh, it catches the eye of Johnny Carson, who invited him on The Tonight Show to promote it, which gained the movie a cult following after that david zucker sees this tonight show appearance and hires him to direct the sketch comedy film kentucky fried movie which is a classic definitely for comedy nerds it is it's a film of just sketches it's really weird and silly and like does not all hold up great but it is like such a necessary watch if you're like a comedy person it's uh, it's the, the the cult comedy hit lands him then the director role on Animal House, my pro- maybe one of my favorite comedy films of all time, alongside Blues Brothers. I mean, I Blues love Brothers those movies. It's like it sucks because you you want to hate John Landis, but then he's made these really amazing movies. Like Blues Dude. Brothers is is so incredible on Blues so many levels. Also, part of so the movie, good. the production money uh, for Blues Brothers was just specifically for cocaine. Oh, <laughs> I'm That's sure. That's fun. But huh? also, but, I mean, that car chase scene in the mall. It's great. Nothing's uh, better than that. You can that feel the cocaine so in it. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh yeah. Super, fu- super coke fuel, bro. Blast in line. I've never done coke. Does it sound like I've done coke before? <laughs> Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. 
I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Uh, John Belushi and Dan, Dan Aykroyd, of course, star in Blues Brothers. Then he goes and makes... So he's like king of comedy at this point. Then he goes and makes... American Werewolf in London. And that is just this quintessential horror film. It's like a horror comedy. It's so, so classic, though. And I'm, I bet that is the first time he ends up working with... Um, Rick Baker. The, that is the Rick first Baker, time right? that Rick Baker and he work together. And then they continue to work together on lots of other Did, did Rick projects. Baker work on Thriller? He with did him? work on Thriller yes. that John Landis also directed. And directed, so he yeah. And Rick Baker... And Rick and uh, John Landis's wife, Deborah Landis, who does the costuming for Coming to America, also worked together on the costuming for the Thriller music video. And yeah. uh, American Werewolf in London also won, I believe, won Rick Baker an Oscar for his it's makeup incredible. and prosthetics work. It's it's incredible. That trans that that uh, that transformation scene when he turns into the werewolf. I mean, is one of the the most classic makeup jobs special effects makeup jobs scenes in uh, film history yes. it is just unbelievable and uh and then of course that brings us to twilight's in the movie with the kid with the decapitation stuff or whatever but we can just keep moving um <laughs> oh, wow that was a lots of yeah, over on that one. trial no, um, during, that during the filming a, a tragedy ensued involving a helicopter crash that resulted in the death of three actors two of which were children and this is what totally it just rocks landis's life and he ends up going on trial with a couple other people for involuntary manslaughter. I will really say, rough we stuff. don't have to talk about it, but I will say it is definitely his fault that it happened. Oh, yeah, we'll talk mm. about yeah. it a little bit, a little bit yeah. on with the fight that he and Eddie Murphy have. It's like the one dark thing. I think it's the only real dark thing that we're going to get into in this episode. Pretty just a couple, much. Just a couple murders real quick. Yeah, yeah. And it's tough. There's also a, a there is a film of it, uh, of the happening. Yeah. Very upsetting. I would not you can recommend actually watch. You can watch a lot about it. There's that Shudder series about oh, like what films. you don't know about. Yeah, the cursed films. And Twilight Zone movie is on that. So you should look that up if you've got Shudder. Yeah, for sure. And then came Trading Places, followed by Spies Like Us and Three Amigos. I mean, unbelievable run. Three Amigos, one of my favorite comedies of all oh, time. Oh, Three Amigos is one of the best comedies of all time. Yeah, I mean, I've said that about his movies. For That is the third time I've said Like, Blues Brothers, know, Animal man, House, Three good. Amigos. These Trading places. I mean, come on, man. These are so like good. some of the greatest. I know he fucking chopped that kid's head off, but like these oh, are amazing. Oh no! Oh, you cut that off if you want. I don't no, know. no, no, no. And I don't know what happened with Trading Places, but for some reason, so originally, which I didn't know this about Trading Places, originally it was Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder that were cast in Trading Places, and then John Landis was brought in to direct. 
For some reason, Richard Pryor then bows out because Landis was brought in, and then Paramount suggested bringing in Eddie Murphy. So Gene Wilder didn't want Richard Pryor to just be replaced, so Gene Wilder then also backs out of the movie, and John Landis brings in oh. Dan Aykroyd because he had worked with him uh, in The Blues Brothers. I wonder what oh. that other movie would have been like. I, I don't yeah. know, but I, That's wish a different I, movie. Seen, I wish I would. I wish I could have seen it. Yes. That's such a different movie, yes. honestly. A very that is really wild. But it is part of this, you know, it is the idea, too, of this brotherhood of Hollywood where they bring in other people, which is usually a, I think, a fun, positive thing about Hollywood of like, oh, if you enjoyed working with someone, you should bring them in again. I think that that's great. But in this, you will see the downside of that, of of bringing in someone to work with on Coming to America like John, like Eddie Murphy does with John Landis and how this can end to, this can lead to heartbreak. Mm, but also mm, speaking mm. of heartbreak, I do want to discuss real quick as we jump into the idea of writing the script that there was a huge lawsuit that happened over the script for Coming to America. And it has to do with political columnist Art Buckwald. So this is a huge, major breach of contract lawsuit. It's Buckwald versus Paramount. That writer Art Buckwald alleged that the studio stole his and his producing partner Alan Bernheim's script treatment that eventually became Coming to America. Art Buckwald said he sold Paramount a Murphy-targeted treatment called King for a Day in 1983. So this is five years before Coming to America is released. His $5 million breach of contract suit would dominate entertainment journalism for years. I do remember hearing about this when it came to the movie Coming to America, but I didn't really know what exactly had happened. And I guess, so this happens after the movie is released. He sues Paramount and says that he wants $5 million for the breach of contract, and that then Paramount tries to claim that the movie didn't actually, like, make that much money, so they really don't owe him anything even what? though coming to america was a huge yeah how would they even get away with saying that they said that it was quote hollywood math of oh. how paramount was using like oh no no we didn't do that but meanwhile at the same time in all of the tabloids they're all screaming about how eddie murphy had $3,800 for his custom motor home that he used on set. There's $1,500 used of the budget for his personal trainer. $650 for his valet. Like there, So the tabloids ripped it apart of like how, where the money was going on the set if they quote unquote didn't make any money to give to this man. Eventually, Art Buckwald in 1992 was awarded $900,000 for the case, which I mean, mean is... I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. But if you think about it, he probably would have made a lot more money if he had sold Coming to America. Was it a valid um, accusation? It seems it. It is pretty much. But the but problem also, is, is that Eddie Murphy did have the idea. Yeah. Yeah. And Art Buckwald also had the idea and it was already written and in Paramount's hands so really what it is that Paramount it's not Eddie Murphy's not at fault for this it was Paramount that was like oh Eddie Murphy wants to do this that's a great idea why don't we just uh, why don't we not tell him that we already already got this other thing huh a production company stole somebody's work what? And even right. he had said, like the uh, the attorney that represented Buckwald said the money was irrelevant to Art Buckwald because he was very well established financially. He said time and time again that if they could steal from Art Buckwald, who at the time was fairly well known, 
they could steal from anybody. Which they do con- so, all the time. Yes. Yeah, so for him, yes. it was a very important cause celebre. Art Whoa. wasn't worried about his next movie deal or he, who he might offend. He was very principled in the idea of this. So it wasn't about the money. It was just he didn't. He wanted to be able to like protect other people in the future and remind them that like if you have this idea and you're already working with a production company... You can sue them if they use it for something else. So the two credited screenwriters are David Sheffield and Barry Blouse. David Sheffield! Mr. Sheffield! (laughs) Sheffield wrote on SNL from 1980 to 1983, and his first screenwriting credit is for Police Academy 2, their first assignment (laughs) with Police Academy movies. Guys, I'm sure Super hold up it are in no way problem. Yeah, no, no, perfect. No, 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 no. Citizens on patrol. <laughs> Blaustein also wrote on SNL during those three years and co-wrote the uh, PA co-wrote the Police Academy movie as well and would later direct Beyond the Mat, which is my favorite documentary about wrestling, but whatever. What? But what about I love the Beyond Andre the, Mat. the Giant documentary? I also love that one. Beyond the Mat is like the greatest documentary about wrestling ever made. Okay, I'll watch that. Sheffield claims Murphy approached him with a concept which was scribbled out on eight or so pages of yellow legal pad. It was originally called The Quest and was Murphy's attempt at, quote, a piece where I would play something other than Eddie. He was saying in every movie he's Eddie Murphy. He wanted it to completely branch out for that by being a hundred people that aren't Eddie Murphy. In all <laughs> the script was written by Sheffield and Blaustein in five weeks and handed in on a weekend. Blaustein said the studio called us first thing Tuesday morning and said, we're shooting in January. It was a whirlwind experience that has not been duplicated. They did have to get permission from McDonald's in order to do the whole McDowell's thing, but apparently McDonald's was actually super. They were cool very about supportive. It. They just I mean, that makes sense the, to me. During the robbery with Samuel L. Jackson's one of his what? first roles. He's so good at it. Uh, uh, they just wanted the money to be put in a white paper bag, not a McDowell's bag or anything, or a McDonald's. I bag was actually very surprised that they were so down with it. Maybe it's just because it was you know, 30 years ago and it was just a different time. But I, I wonder if they must have cut them some part of it or, you know, it's like it, it, but I love that they also include in the movie, the fight between McDowell's and McDonald's. Yes, and McDonald's, which is so <laughs> funny. And apparently too, when they started like setting up, so, okay, this was a Wendy's by the way. And I'm such a American fat You're boy a that I was head, like, oh, yes. this is clearly a Wendy's interior. Not <laughs> it really is. Yes. Like it really is very, if you know your fast food, you definitely can tell it's not a McDonald's that they renovated. Uh, but apparently when they started setting up the McDowell's exterior to shoot, like the, there was a McDonald's like down the street and the owner of that McDonald's like ran uh, to the building and was like, well, you can't do this. What are you doing? Essentially, <laughs> like, 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 Your did the overlord thing with, said that we yeah, could. They, were, they had to apparently like talk him off of a ledge because he thought they were like copyright infringing an actual McDonald's. <laughs> I, I just recently saw that a couple years ago they did a McDonald's pop up in L.A. and I'm so sad that oh, I didn't get to dude. go. I know. Oh, you always hear about these damn things afterwards. Oh, I think it's because um, I don't want to say we're old now, but I think it's because we're old. Well, Natalie, now. you can if you look up the address. I think they even say the address in the movie. But if you look it up, it's that on Queens Wendy's, Boulevard, baby. It's still there, That's my and you can go. Baby. So don't fear not, Natalie. You can still go to the real McDowell's anytime when you come. Wait, visit what Queens. is it though? It's, it's a, a Wendy's. Wendy's. Oh, it's a Wendy's. It's still a, it's still a Wendy's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, they, they bought the Wendy's out for $50,000 to transform it, by the way. So 
There you go. Some more money being thrown around by this evil Eve. Oh, uh, but they didn't make any money, Holden. Mm-hmm. It was Eddie's. It was, so it was Eddie Murphy's idea to play multiple characters in a barbershop because this was based on a bit that he used to do with his buddy Clint Smith. They uh, called Clint and Edmund, where they would just sit around. Uh, and and by the way, David Sheffield and Barry Blaustein would be around for these sessions. They would just sit around and like be these characters in a barbershop just for just for funsies. And so they had done it for so long that the writers had so much material to work with. It's that so they like funny. Knew All those that scenes are the, just so great. Just so, yeah, it's so, so funny. well done. Just I they kill it. The barbershop Again, scenes are so funny. Eddie Murphy funny. is so transformed in that scene. You could probably not know that was him pretty easily. Yeah. I, for sure. I, I it made me it, it used to make I think uh for what Steel Magnolias did for me with um going to a hair salon coming to America did for me with a barbershop because I also I had a buzzed head for so many years that I would go to barbershops in Brooklyn all the Aww. time because they were so much cheaper yeah, and totally. so you could get like a great cut for like 10 bucks and I just I love everything about it <laughs> um now since we're talking about all these different characters I would love to talk real quick about Rick Baker beautiful beautiful Rick Baker who is the one that transformed them into all of these characters now you will know the name Rick Baker if it uh, if it springs something from your brain space. Who worked on the special effects of The Exorcist? He did the giant. He created the giant gorilla for the 1976 film King Kong. And apparently, Rick Baker even wore the suit to play the part of King Kong. And his acting was not credited. He did a million other things. But in 1982, he won the first ever Academy Award for Best Makeup and Hairstyling for an American werewolf in London. He says the big payoff was seeing his face stretch out and change, you know, right before your eyes. Can you imagine how hard he was when the like the first time that it actually worked? I would like lose my mind for it. You mean like erect? Yeah, dog. I'd Just be full ejaculation. Yeah, sure. And uh, so Landis brought in Rick Baker. Because they had worked together on American Werewolf in London and also Michael Jackson's thriller video. And he really wanted Rick Baker to uh, create the elaborate prosthetics that allowed Murphy and Arsenio Hall to play multiple supporting roles. Now, this is just a fun little side story about creating the the older Jewish character for Eddie Murphy. So John Landis, who had just read a book about Jewish comedians donning blackface in the vaudeville days, suggested flipping the script. He says to Eddie Murphy, Rick Baker can make you an old Jew. <laughs> and he told Eddie Murphy, and Rick Baker did, so successfully that when Paramount executives visited the set while Murphy was made up as Saul, they didn't recognize their studio's biggest star. In fact, Rick Baker told us about a time when Eddie Murphy, in his Saul character, got in a golf cart, took off in Paramount Studios, and went into every office where he knew all these people to see if they would recognize him. And (laughs) nobody did. He even made a date with an older secretary and tried to sell a script. Oh, man, I wish that there was video footage of that. (laughs) And so that's... And all of the work that he put into... Which, like, Rick Baker is is a huge dude in SFX. And to bring him on, and for essentially... A comedy, just a, a comedy. Yeah. This is huge to have this kind of upper level work done on something that is essentially, I hate to say just a comedy because obviously you know what comedy means to me, but 
just a comedy. Yeah, I mean, not especially because not a lot of comedies use that much special effects and makeup yeah, and stuff. Yeah, so. it's so well done. And so, yeah, they just really went for it, I think. Yeah, doll. Hell yeah. So, uh, shall I, shallst I talk, speak upon the cast? Speak upon, bitch. All right, let's start with Arsenio Hall, who plays Simmy, Reverend Brown, Morris the Barber, and Extremely Ugly Girl. Which we disagree with. We think she's <laughs> I beautiful. I think she's beautiful. <laughs> Born and raised in Ohio, Hall performed as a magician as a child and later moved to Chicago and then Los Angeles to pursue comedy. Oh, he was a, mag- a magician? Yeah. That's cute. Isn't that fun? He was like, oh, what's in my pants? He's like, and then well, Oh, no, Holton. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you would be like if you were a magician. It's a rabbit. It's a fun pink rabbit. No, I'm scared. <laughs> uh, in 1984, he got a gig as Alan Thicke's sideman on a short-lived talk show. Is it called Getting Thick with Alan Thicke? <laughs> yes, <laughs> <Yeah>. exactly. <laughs> I think it was called something like that. Either way, in 1986, uh, here's a bit of a crossover. After Joan Rivers' late night show on Fox Ouch. ended. Oh. Right, which is like the the worst year in Joan Rivers' life is converging with Arsenio Hall's uh, kind of his big break. Um, so that show ends. The series was renamed The Late Show, and it had multiple interim hosts, including Hall, which was so successful, he would end up getting his own show, The Arsenio Hall Show, just about six months after Coming to America released in theater. I do want to throw so this out there real fast. Name. He's Yeah, he's about to blow up. But I do want to say that I looked into the feud, quote unquote, between Arsenio Hall and Eddie Murphy that I will say seems to be completely manufactured by tabloids. Because apparently right after coming to America, Eddie Murphy decided that Arsenio Hall was riding on his coattails too hard. So Eddie Murphy refused to be on the Arsenio Hall show. And then years later, he comes on the show and he's like, remember when like the media made up that we hated each other and they both laugh about it? <laughs> so I, I guess it's all, I think it's all fake. Well, they also were nice. pitting them against each other before they met. It's like, a, it's like a Britney X-Tina really, type of it thing. It really was. Where it's like, there's no need to. They're completely, two completely different actors. But yeah. I will say, Arsenio Hall did make it clear that he wanted to do the same amount of other characters in Coming to America that Eddie Murphy did. But I don't think that's so much pitting them against each other as like, well, if he's going to do it, I'm going to do it. Yeah, and then, yeah. I mean, it's, it can be like a healthy competition in yes. a lot of ways. But, I mean, sure. they got they obviously worked things out because they made the sequel, and our friend Jermaine is in I it. I know. We're going to talk about Jermaine. We got we to gotta, uh, get him and sit uh, sit down and talk to him about making the movie. Oh, we have to. Oh, we'd maybe love maybe to. we'll do that closer to the release of it. Yeah, whenever that is. He plays Akeem, finds out that he has a son. In back in America, and he's essentially like James Earl Jones's character, the pr- Prince Joff, Joffrey or whatever is Joffy is Joffer. about to. He's about to die and give him the kingdom, and then he finds out he has a, a, a son back in America, and he needs to go back to America to essentially make him the prince of of the kingdom. So that's gotcha. essentially what it is, and yeah. Either way, let's talk about James Earl Jones. King Jaffe Joffer. It was right in front of my face the whole time, and I'm trying to come up with the name. Raised by his maternal grandparents on a farm, starting at the age of five, the transition was so difficult for him, he developed a stutter so bad that he refused to speak until an English teacher in high school encouraged him to speak. Can you imagine? He's got the most notable... Iconic. Iconic, yeah. 
Absolutely. Voice of all time. Like his voice is unbelievable. His voice is incredible. And, and to think that he didn't start speaking until high school blew me away. After a brief stint in the military, he began acting at a theater in Michigan and eventually became one of the best-known Shakespearean actors in the U.S. in the 60s. He made his film debut as a bombardier in Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, which oh. I love. He, uh, his, and, and I do re recall a very young, young James Earl Jones in that movie. Uh, his role as Jack Johnson in the play The Great White Hope was his big breakout and earned him a Tony for Best Actor in a Play. And he would later, that would later be his first leading film role as well when they made the movie. In the 70s, he also most notably was the voice of Darth Vader in Star Wars. Again, so iconic. Yes. <laughs> Can't believe he didn't speak till high school, which led to several big box office hits for him, such as, oh, um, uh, Conan the Barbarian is an incredible film. So good. And I love, every time I bring up Conan the Barbarian, I also have to recommend the DVD commentary for Conan the Barbarian with the director of that movie and Arnold Schwarzenegger is the funniest DVD commentary in the business. You have to listen to Why? it. it is, it's just hilarious. Like they barely remember the movie and, and like it, oh, the banter so it was done is just, like years later. Their banter is just so funny. That's like great. it's, uh, it's just great. I, I don't know how to describe it. It's just so funny. It's like, they're like, Oh yeah, I remember that now. Oh, very, very interesting. <laughs> And they just tell funny stories and stuff. It's just a very funny DVD commentary. Either way, you also let's let's now talk about John Amos played uh, who plays Cleo McDowell, the uh, owner of the restaurant and the father of the love interest. Born and raised in New Jersey, he played football for the Colorado State Rams and was a Golden Glove boxing champion. Same as my grandfather, by the way. My grandfather was Golden Glove boxing champion. Ooh, wait, really? That's awesome. Yeah, totally. And you should know. Why are yeah, you why doing you boxing? It? And look how big and strong I am. <laughs> you should you should box or something. You think I should? You should get, yeah, yes. I should get my face beaten in for I money? Think, <laughs> I think that you would be, oh my God, you would be so scary in the ring. <laughs> oh. And I think that, that is, I think <laughs> that's really good. So yep, I'm scared of you. Uh, either way, either way, ladies, please. <laughs> After a failed attempt at a professional football career, Amos went into TV acting work with his first big gig being a regular on the sitcom Good Times in the mid-70s. But, and I love this move, such a pro move, he left after he had issues with the way the show portrayed the black community. He put his foot down, which is kind of great. Then he went on to play the adult Kunta Kinte in the groundbreaking television miniseries Roots. Which and is again, also why it's even funnier that in the barber shop yeah, they refer to that. Eddie Murphy as Kunta Kinte. Yes, they refer, yeah, it's so funny. And, and, uh, but yeah, if, again, it's like, if you don't know Roots, that was ubiquitous back in the day. That was everywhere. Ugh. Then we have Madge Sinclair, who uh, plays Queen Aelion Joffrey. Man, I have been in love with her. She is, she, oh, talk about, oh, I just want, I want to be Madge Sinclair. She's, she's so regal. Yes. She's so perfect for the part. She was born and raised in Jamaica. She first worked as a teacher there until she left in the mid-60s to go to NYC to pursue acting. She did theater work in the late 60s and eventually moved to, into TV and film in the 70s with her big breakout, also being the miniseries Roots, as Belle Reynolds, for which she got an Emmy nom. Also, uh, to round out the cast, Sherry Headley, who plays Lisa, the love interest. So, about such also. a fucking beautiful, beautiful woman. And um, I've just seen, sorry to cut you off. Oh, I just, no, go for it. When, remembered, I just recently saw a video clip of her from like last year. And she is, not that it matters, but she is still so, so beautiful. stunningly beautiful, so beautiful, like to this day. 
It's just yeah. like, oh, oh you're so I bet. pretty. It's her smile. I know. Wow, I'd really like to rev her engine, huh? Wow. Yeah, I would as well. <laughs> I'd also wa- definitely watch the the tape of her and Eric, Las- Eric LaSalle. I'm just saying. <laughs> Oof. And she was also she was actually born and raised in Queens, New York. She started out as a what, model what? and made made her acting debut at the age of 21 on The Cosby Show, which led to work on shows like Miami Vice, Quantum Leap, and Matlock before she got this movie. I also wanted to mention uh, your your Bay Eric LaSalle. He uh, was an actor, actor. He went to Juilliard. Yeah, he I know. He's University's Dr. Benton. Tisch School of the Arts. After that, he uh, immediately gets cast after college in a Shakespeare in the Park production of Henry V. Then he just starts doing a bunch of Broadway and off-Broadway while also doing daytime TV stuff such as One Life to Live. That makes a lot of sense. And then that leads up to getting this. And after this, his next big role, of course, is as Dr. Peter Benton in ER. Oh, my God. He's show so that's rational. almost as good as Chicago you Hope. Then you him. also How have dare you hold it? Paul ben- <laughs> I will say I love Christine Lottie, but ER is, is leagues beyond Chicago Hope. But we're not going to go down this road well, right now. Well, hospital drama. <laughs> I'm more of a the practice guy, and I know that's not hospital drama, but yeah, I'm just but, a little ooh, bit more. Yeah, but ooh, I mean, Dylan McDermott, okay. <laughs> I watched all, I was obsessed I watched with all, all of them. Yeah, I feel I like I've never shows. seen hospital drama before. It's probably for the best. Dude, I, I had just such a them. TV schedule, and I definitely would always watch at 10 p.m. Yep. Like, usually a drama, unless it was like 2020 or something like that. Like, sometimes I'd watch that stuff, you know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. Whatever. Oh, yeah. Either way, uh, you also we have... cool is what we're saying. <laughs> <laughs> have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You also have Paul Bates, who I didn't, at a glance, wasn't able to dig up a lot. He's just been a working motherfucking actor since the early 80s. Like, he's just been doing... And he will be in Coming to America. One of the things I love about, oh, by the way, Coming, the number two America. Not a big fan of that naming convention, by the way, because it's very confusing when you just say it out loud versus seeing it. But either way, I love about Coming to America, which we will close out talking about the sequel. They brought back, like, most of the cast, if not, like, all the main people, including, like, Louis Anderson and folks like that. But, which, but Louis uh, Anderson is so fantastic in this movie. But, um... Paul Bates, he's the guy who, who goes, she's so queen to be. It's that guy. He's that so guy. Good. He's so funny. And he's I'm going to so, have it like, sung to me as I walk down the aisle. If I, I ever have walk to. down the aisle. Now, now that it's been stated, you have to do yes. it. He's so like understated, but he has just been in a million different things. It's ridiculous. And he still has a bunch. Like looking at his IMDb right now, he still has a bunch of stuff 
in the works and pre-production and post-production anyway. So he's just a, one of those re steady, regular working actors. Shout out to the other cast members, such as Frankie Faison from The Wire, uh, or you might recognize him from The Wire. The intended wife for Akeem, played by Vanessa Bell, Louis, Louis Anderson, oh, oh, and oh. of course Samuel L. Jackson as an armed robber. And I feel like I got major Pulp Fiction vibes from Samuel L. Jackson in for his sure. turn oh, as, also, the bank, um, as the armed robber, rather. One of Cuba Gooding Jr.'s first. Yes, uh, yeah. he doesn't yeah. say anything, right? He, he just anything. sits in no. the chair. Yeah, he's in the, the barbershop shop. in the very beginning, yeah. uh, when they first get to America, at least. Yeah, he's just sitting Little in baby. the chair, staring straight forward. But yeah. All right, let's talk about making the movie. This is where we get into it. This is where we oh, talk about making the movie. we're gonna get into it. Screw it. Hmm. That's a bad song. It was um, <laughs> <laughs> the schedule for shooting this movie was intense, almost as intense as the drama that occurred on set. Nuts, man. This is uh, it's a lot. Eddie Murphy and John Landis really ended up not liking each other at the end of this. The timeline was just six months, too, which added to the tension on set. Landis said, The guy on Trading Places was young and full of energy and curious and funny and fresh and great. The guy on Coming to America was the pig of pig the world. Of the Ugh, world. That's not good to say. But I still think he's wonderful in the movie. This is what's crazy. So you have to remember. So John Landis directed Eddie Murphy in Trading Places. Then everything happens in between with Twilight Zone and John Landis is down and out. And so Eddie Murphy, who was originally going to direct this movie, decides to bring John Landis in. Oh, it was so Eddie's call. It was Eddie Murphy's call. So yeah. he wanted to get help him out because of everything that had just happened in the Twilight Zone. So this is where it starts right before we start recording. And also, this is the biggest Eddie Murphy had ever been. Because right. at the end of that, the guy on Coming to America was the pig of the world. He does also continue John Landis and says, Eddie Murphy has the most unpleasant, arrogant, bullshit entourage, and that Eddie Murphy is just an asshole. Jesus Christ. It is, this, this is, these, them some fighting you words. You were the man who just killed a bunch of people. You just killed a bunch of people. Which is, we were, you know, it's, it's, um, it was, apparently he claims that they had a good working relationship, but that it changed over time because Eddie Murphy was a jerk on set he says in fact one of the greatest performances he'd ever given because the character he plays in coming to america hakeem is so opposite of what eddie really was that he's a gentleman he's charming and elegant as opposed to this jerk off someone i think it was james earl jones used to say that when eddie came on set it's like an arctic wind this is what <laughs> murphy had to say personalities didn't mesh i grabbed him and he thought i was playing so he tried to grab my balls and I pushed him away. But I wasn't kidding. He was doing some silly shit that made me mad. He directed me in trading places when I was just starting out as a kid, but he was still treating me like a kid five years later during Coming to America. And I hired him to direct the movie. He also went on to say, I was gonna direct Coming to America myself, but I knew that Landis had just done three fucked up pictures in a row and that his career was hanging by a thread after the Twilight Zone trial. By the way, Seriously, Migos is one of those movies which I'm so shocked at because, like, I that is one of again all time classic for me. It anyway. seems like they were making those movies while the trial was happening ah. because this seemed what it, it at least what it seems like with the timeline is that 
the trial would like ended right before he started making this movie. Ah. Murphy went on to say, I figured the guy was nice to me when I did tr- when I did trading places, so I'd give him a shot. I'm a popular actor in this town, and to have a guy who was as fucked up as he was get a job with me gave him some renewed credibility. I was going out of my way to help the guy, and he fucked me over. Now he's got a hit picture on his resume, a movie that made over $200 million, as opposed to him coming off of a couple of fucked up movies, which is where I'd rather see him be right now. So, I mean, he's not what, wrong. And part of what is being brought up that is brought up on set over and over again and, and what it was an issue for John Landis is that Eddie Murphy apparently was asked to come and testify on John Landis's behalf in the Twilight Zone trial and Eddie Murphy declined. I just So when he was asked, why didn't he testify? And in an interview, he was asked, did you think that John Landis was guilty? Eddie Murphy said... I don't want to say who was guilty or who was innocent, but if you're directing a movie and two kids get their heads chopped off at fucking 12 o'clock at night when there ain't supposed to be kids working and you said action, then you have some sort of responsibility. So my principals wouldn't let me go down there and sit in court. That's just the way I am. If somebody in my family was guilty of something, I wouldn't sit there for them in a courtroom and say, you've got my support. Fuck that. The most of it would be is, hey, you go work that out. I still love you. I'm still your friend. Well, absolutely. And also, I don't really understand what is it was it just supposed to be like a character witness or something? Because yes, because they had worked together in the past to use to say like, no, he, uh, since I've worked him as a director, I've never felt da- in danger while on his set. I, I mean, that makes sense, I guess. But. If you look at what actually happened, in Eddie Murphy's 100% correct in that yeah, statement. Yeah. But totally. not only did Landis do that, the guy operating the helicopter told him it was too dangerous to do, and he said, you fucking do it. So he went against safety wow. right. from professionals, so it is definitely John Landis's fault. Yes, he should have been brought to trial for it. You, you are responsible for the entire set. You know what is going on for you a lot. But anyway... So this is part of this is the bed of them, yeah. like of underneath what was it. underneath when they were filming this movie. And it drove Eddie Murphy to drink for the first and last time. Yes, Murphy said, "I drank once while making Coming to America. Wow. I had some weirdness with John Landis, who was directing the movie." Well, he doesn't drink. No. Wow. Even though there's no sex in the champagne room, but I guess there's also no drinking in the champagne. Room. No, I guess. We had a tussling confrontation, and when I went home, Arsenio Hall gave me some alcohol to settle me down. I thought a drink might help, so I drank a whole quart of absolute vodka. Jesus Christ! (laughs) I won the most vomit award. I was bent over the toilet for hours. That was the first and last time I'll ever drink. I think maybe uh, you could have just started with like a couple sips. You know. There was also the story they told in that interview with Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall that they like, they had a two-hour break yeah. late at night on set, so they went to a... They called it a disco around the corner, which I think is amazing, yeah. just to put this in a place in time. They went to a club. They partied at the club the whole time and then, like, brought the whole club back to the set with them and, like, took a bunch of ladies home and stuff. It seemed like a pretty serious like time. Yeah. I'm sure Landis loved that. If there is one thing um, that seems pretty consistent, Eddie Murphy is a bit of a ladies' man. Yes. He's, right. He seems to like... Kissing. He likes sensually. Yes. Kissing. Yes. 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 Now I want to talk about the dance, but I want to try to redeem myself with a song to introduce that. 
Now we're gonna talk about Ooh, the dance okay. romance. There's a little Blink-182 in there. Are you trying to hide um, your erection for the dance? Because, man, that dance always... I think it is why I took the class African dance in college. I mean, it's those awesome. costumes left nothing... You better have some toned abs if you're going to wear that shit. Wow, they looked great. Yeah. Yeah, pa- Paula Abdul choreographed the dance mm-hmm. scene in Zamunda. Uh, Abdul said, I really wanted to create something that was regal, unique, and exhilarating all at the same time. And at this point, then Paul Abdul uh, goes into a, a, a drug-induced sleep, but then she wakes up five minutes later to say this. John Lennon <laughs> wanted an unforgettable performance that captured the joy and spirit of Prince Akeem's wedding celebration. She falls asleep again, wakes back up five minutes later. One of the biggest compliments I could ever receive as a choreographer is when I'm told that it's one of the most recognizable and recreated dance scenes in our pop culture history. Working on this project was one of the most extraordinary experiences that has truly enriched my life. And this is another thing that really probably would be more something that would not happen now where an African-based dance would not be done by an American white lady. Um, But Paula Abdul is a a fantastic choreographer, and this is before she was a pop star, right? Yes, and she she had just done the the cat music video oh she was like right, right. Oh, okay. about so, to pop so off she and, was like she was of, a laker girl and yeah. then this is, but this is also right before she started choreographing the um the fly girls yeah and mm-hmm. um i so apparently though john landis wanted the person that had originally choreographed janet jackson because she said that when she got this job she was still a laker girl she said i went in and he looked at me and said what are you a teenager and i said Yes, I am. He basically was telling me, what do you know about African dancing? And this is my whole thing when I'm becoming a choreographer. I'll just tell everyone, yes, I know exactly what I'm doing, and I'll figure it out later. I mean, that's so, got, she got some cojones. I mean, she figured mm-hmm. it out. It is the, a, the, an iconic dance. The dance piece is really fucking beautiful. Yeah. It, 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 by, it, it involved about two dozen dancers, and it took two days to film. That must have been exhausting. Insane. But that set is so... Beautiful. It's so yeah. gorgeous and almost as gorgeous as the costumes that were designed for not only the dance, but for the entire movie. So the costume designer is Deborah Landis. She goes by Deborah Nadulman in the credits. So I believe it is to distance herself from her husband because they work together a lot. But she is she got Oscar nominated for the clothes for the fictional African country of Zamunda in 1988. She'd also worked on Raiders of the Lost Ark. She worked on the Thriller video. She's worked on lots. Lots of things that have iconic clothing. clothing. Again, we keep going back to this more breaking down these movies. Like so many of them, the costume designers were very important, even if we didn't realize it. Yes. Yeah. And she did struggle a lot with the idea that she was a white woman making mm clothing for a for people from Africa so she really got into the nitty-gritty but the thing is is that she was actually and why her husband wanted to work with her specifically on this is that she was actually very into the um the design of African clothing and culture before she started working on this movie. She said that the style of, for the fictional country of Zamunda was inspired by Gambia, Senegal, and Scotland mixed together. 
She also discusses the challenge she faces as a white woman designing gowns for an African nation. She says, coming to America was special because it was really wholly my creation. Well, I should say the look was wholly my creation, certainly not the film. John, my husband, gave me a brief and said to create this world. And that was my brief. Who are these people, you know? It was very tricky. For a white designer, it really kept me up at night, every night, trying to consider which way to go. But she said, I had started collecting from the time I was in college African arts magazines. So much later on, after I designed Coming to America, my friend was like, oh, I see you have African arts magazines. Of course you have that because you designed Coming to America. And I said, no, that's not how it works at all. I had African arts magazines in college. I was familiar. I had already internalized some of African design, east, west, north, south, by the time I had got Coming to America. I didn't have time to internalize all that information about all these people in a two-month period. No, 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 no. I'd love them from the time I was young. And so when I was given the dream project, I had a beginning. I had something to think about. I already had the knowledge. She's also now working, and I, I, it is something that at the time— it was already difficult enough for a woman to be in charge of the entire creating of the environment mm-hmm. for these characters. So you could say that I feel that she was struggling with the fact that she was white and making the costumes for it. But they are so beautiful and so elegant. Well, she's actually, unquestionably a very gifted yes, costume Yes, she's designer. got multiple doctorates in, in, yeah. in design. She also, she cast every single piece of jewelry herself. And she said, the only thing I didn't design was Eddie Murphy's ties. Other than that, I very often designed and make the ties, but I designed and constructed and I manufactured every single costume in that film. Down is, to, that's crazy. I was reading wow. this like crazy in depth. She pulled apart how she designed every single outfit like, in that, it. That scene too, when uh, in the wedding and everything. There, yeah. how many people are in that scene? Like Tons. a couple hundred. And, those, and I, I noticed like I was really caught my eye the fashion in that scene. It it's was beautiful. So much. Yeah. And even down to Akeem and Semi suits. So she gets into like the background design that uh, uh, of every character. She said, I had to think about where young Akeem would have gone to school. And I decided, because I really needed a direction for the shape of the suits, that he would have gone to a boarding school from Africa. He would have gone to somewhere like Eton or Harrow in England. And I was really inspired by the young Maharajas of India, all of whom went to England for school. And princes from around the world in the 19th century went to England to be educated. So in my imagination, I made this up. She laughs. I totally made this story up. This is not a line in the screenplay. I was not directed to do this. So in the in this interview that I watched, they compare the suits that they are wearing in in the movie to what young people would be wearing in boarding schools. And you can see how she pulled the design elements from that. Well, wow, that lady really thinks hard. Yeah, she does think pretty hard is what I'm saying. <laughs> but I understand why she won the Oscar for it because... It's be- what it, like so eye-catching. Mm-hmm. Every outfit, there's so much care and thought put into it, including the ocelot tux that Akeem wears for the wedding. And they gave her an ocelot to use to make for it. And she says, wait a minute, how did this ocelot die? And they told me this ocelot lived to a ripe old age. <laughs> he died of natural causes in a zoo. So I was like, okay, if anyone asks, I have that disclaimer. No animals died in the making of this film. Good. 
I have to say too that uh, even though his original bride, her dress is basically making her just like an object. I love it still. Awesome. I don't know what that says about me, but uh, I would wear that dress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I will. Int- we're going to talk about the sc- the score, and I want to introduce that with the song to try to make up for the other two. Please. Okay? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now we are gonna talk about the score. Next. Sor- I want sorry. another one to come out okay. of the bus. The score, you t- I killed a guy when I was 17. The score, oh, I hid no. his body under oh. the green oh, grass no. of the what lawn in front of my house. Did you hear what you just said? Did you black out just no. now? Yeah, we're talking about the score. I sang a song about how we're going to talk about how they made the music for the thing. Uh, right. I think you belong uh, in jail now. <laughs> You'll never find him. You'll never find him. <laughs> oh, it's just under the green. Well, I'm going to assume <laughs> the green of the college you went to, so we're we're going to go to Florida State. <laughs> there is a green in Florida State uh, in front of the library. Uh, Anyways, remember, a t- city, whatever. All right, let's get into it. You remember when we it. went to college a thousand years ago? Yeah. Yeah, and we were really unhealthy, and it was awesome. Yeah. I did ecstasy. Oh, my God, you were so puffy. I was. Either <laughs> way, uh, the score, this was the first ever score done by Niall Rogers, who is the co-founder of a disco band called Chic. Their song Good Times is one of the most sampled songs of all time. It appears in Rapper's Delight. Another one bites the dust and Daft Punk's Around the World. Mm-hmm. They're responsible for that that beat. Yeah. And he also would end up being like he produced and wrote with Diana Ross, David Bowie, Madonna. This guy's worked with all, every all the big hitters. He also did the Soul Glow, Glow jingle as well and claimed that it was his quote proudest moment. Guy worked with Madonna and David Bowie, and his proudest moment is the Soul Glow jingle. I mean, it's I a great jingle. <laughs> it's such it's really a good, good jingle. <laughs> and of course, you have the South African male choral group, Ladysmith Black Mambazo, are the ones who sing Mbube, also known as the Lion Sleeps Tonight in the film's opening. They became well known in the States after collaborating with Paul Simon on his album Graceland in 1986. This is just a couple years later. The soundtrack's four singles were Coming to America by The System. Better Late Than Never by The Cover Girls, and Come Into My Life by Laura Branigan, and Joe Esposito, as well as That's The Way It Is by Mel and Kim. I do find it very interesting, and this I don't really understand. So apparently John Landis brought in Nile Rodgers to do the score, and that the he said that he had to do it as they were shooting the film, because principal photography had to be done by a specific date, because of Eddie Murphy? So uh, uh, this is the way that the story was told to Niall Rogers. John Landis, the director of the film, said Eddie Murphy had seen this film called The Man Who Saw Tomorrow about the quatrains of Nostradamus, and he predicted the exact day of the big earthquake where California was going to fall into the ocean. So Eddie Murphy said they had to have principal photography wrapped by that day. What? So... Niall Rogers moved to California with his partner, Rich, who created the soundtrack. And they basically, he said, moved in on the Paramount lot. He said, Rich and I were there 17 hours a day some days. And some days would be even longer than that. He said, the way I composed for that film, they would give us dailies because they didn't know what part was going to be scored. Normally, you finish the movie, they edit it all together, and then you stand with the director and do what they call spotting. And he goes, okay, right here, the villains are doing it, or here, they fall in love. 
So they'd give me dailies and I'd have to watch the film and sort of understand emotionally what was going on and write to that right on spot. Take those thumbnails home and work on it. I'd get together with Rich the next day because I had a synclavier and we'd do mock orchestrations of it. Then we'd have to present it for the director. So he's doing this as the movie is being shot for some reason. And he even said, I was hired to do something that I had to do it. And in my opinion, it had to be great. I couldn't say, oh, man, just not feeling it today. Let me drop a little acid. What? At the end of the day, coming I have so to- many questions about all of this. <laughs> it, I don't really understand why, but that is what Niall Rogers said that he had to do to create the soundtrack for it. Because Eddie Murphy thought that the that the ocean, the earthquake was going to destroy the, the California, California was going to the ocean, and so that's why the shooting and why everything had to go so quickly. Well, you know what? Ha! That's kind of a great trick to get people to do things. I mean, it will, it will definitely make you jump, man. The world is sinking. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. To... We got to finish this movie. <laughs> uh, so there was a little bit of a happy ending for Landis and Eddie Murphy. Of Eventually, after all, Landis said, Eddie and I had a real parting of ways. It was like, fuck you. We really disliked each one another. And many years later, I was approached to do Beverly Hills Cop 3. And I asked, well, who's playing Eddie Murphy? They said, no, Eddie asked for you. So I met with him and he was pleasant. I still think it was his way of apologizing. But who knows with Eddie? He's so strange. A very odd fellow, but so talented. And even right afterwards, they um, they made a pilot for the movie that was produced by Eddie Murphy that went absolutely nowhere. Eddie Murphy and CBS produced a pilot for the TV version starring in living color actor Tommy Davidson as Prince Tariq, the now King Akeem's little brother, and Paul Bates reprising his role as Oha. But that absolutely went nowhere. So they've been trying to bring this back around multiple different times, and then they finally put it to bed until... A couple of years ago, now coming to America is supposed to be, it is slotted to be released in December of this year, but obviously we have no idea if that is going to actually happen. And um, also a lot of the reviews for coming to America were pretty great. It went even better than a lot of people thought that it was going to go, which is why they really wanted to capitalize on this even further. And um, now they're going to. And even Eddie Murphy had come out and saying, of course, the big question was, is he going to work with John Landis again? The answer is no. Yeah, it doesn't need to be John Landis. Eddie Murphy said in a statement, after many years of anticipation, I'm thrilled that Coming to America 2 is officially moving forward. We've assembled a great team that will be led by Craig Brewer, who just did an amazing job on Dolomite. Hell yeah. And I'm looking forward mm, to bringing awesome. all these classic and beloved characters back to the screen, as well as they are working with Ruth E. Carter. So Ruth E. Carter is, was the first African-American to take home an Academy Award in the costume design category for Black Panther. And so Ruth E. Carter will be doing the costumes for the sequel, but was cool and part of that interview that I had read with uh, Deborah Landis was that they that it, it was like a passing over of the guards where Ruthie Carter also is is in talks with Deborah Landis about like how did you create all of this yeah. like like in a matter of like respect of like I know that this like this is a huge shoes to fill and I'd like to hear where all of your ideas came from so obviously Deborah Landis isn't like assisting or anything on it it's yeah. just that they had conversations, which I think is a very respectful, cool fucking thing to do. Definitely cool. Yeah. 
There are also so many returning people. Sheffield and Blaustein returned Mr. to write Sheffield, the script. remember? Uh, they were also joined by Kenya Barris, who co-wrote Girls Trip, as well as he did like all the blackish shows on TV. He also, we talked about it on page seven this week, he uh, he co-wrote, on, or he wrote the new Witches movie. Yeah, that's pretty Witches sweet. Film. Which is which is going to be very interesting, I think, and it uh, definitely has Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall, of course, as well as Sherry Headley, Lover. John, yes. John Amos, Louis Anderson, James Earl Jones, all returning to Love play it. their original roles. They also added to the cast Leslie Jones, as we already mentioned, Jermaine Fowler, and by the way, I just want to re-mention that we're all friends with him. So yeah, we know him, so that. it's fine. Like we're all friends, <laughs> whatever. And um, so we know him pretty well. Uh, Wesley Snipes, who was fantastic in Dolomite. And Tracy Morgan, uh, to round out the cast. Incredible cast. Yeah. Incredible cast. Uh, and yes, as we said, Akeem is about to become king when he discovered that he has, discovers that he has a son back in America and has to return to broom his groom his prom, broom his crown prince. Yeah, you want to prune his brown? His brown prince? Yes. <laughs> I want to prune his brown. On that note, that is all I've got. This has been our episode on Coming to America we hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. I really had a blast rewatching this movie uh, this past week and exploring it. And also, it is difficult in my brain to remember that living in America is not in this movie. And I always <laughs> am waiting for it to play. And I'm like, no, living in no, America is not in this movie. I'm <laughs> saying, can you see? Yeah, girl. Um, you Coming get it. to America. We love you guys so much. Thank you for joining us again. My name is Jackie Zabrowski, and I'm your queen to be. You can follow me on Instagram at Jack That Worm. That's right. I'm Holden McNeely. Catch me on twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Every Friday night, I do a stream with Jackie, and we have so much fun. Wee! Oh, uh, Patreon.com forward slash page seven podcast as well. Yo, what's up, Natalie? I'm Natalie Jean. I am disease free. Uh, I have. At Nat- the Natty Jean on all this stuff, and we are at page seven LPN. Not living in America. Bye. I'm sorry. We are. Now we- it's in my. I am. Bye. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.